the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Medical equipment, personal protective equipment, a big topic of last night's COVID task force briefing. You had um, the uh, Admiral Polchek, who's uh, running point, and apparently Jared Kushner has been roped in to uh, assist the Admiral and uh, work at the uh, discretion of Vice President Pence, the task force leader. You had uh, Peter Navarro, who's running point for President Trump on Defense Production Act issues. And that's a, that was an issue that's the uh, collective group spent a lot of time on because of stories like this. Florida uh, emergency management uh, guy uh, Jared Moskowitz on with Tucker Carlson last night talking about uh, his interaction with 3M publicly uh, criticized by the president yesterday. For the last several weeks, we've had like a boiler room uh, in our EOC chasing down uh, uh, 3M authorized distributors, brokers, uh, supposedly representing that they sell N95 masks only to get to warehouses that are completely empty, uh, being told that our shipments are on cargo planes uh, and the flights don't even appear on FlightAware. We're chasing, we're chasing ghosts, Tucker. Uh, and, and so, you know, I just decided to turn up the heat uh, and tell people what is actually happening uh, in the N95 mask space. And so, you know, 3M reached out to, to us today. Their government relations folks wanted to have a, a conversation. And, and I thought perhaps maybe uh, what 3M would finally say to me is that uh, they have masks to sell me. But what I actually found out is, uh, it, is, is even more frightening. It's what, what we suspected, which is that the system is completely broken uh, and, and that uh, the authorized distributors who right now can't tell me a timeline when I'm going to receive my masks orders that I put in a month ago, uh, and, by the way, the terms and conditions are, you know, i got to pay for the masks and can't cancel my order, uh, is that 3M has lost total control. Uh, and so uh, what I ask 3M is that are they aware that their authorized distributors, U.S. companies, are telling me that the reason why our orders are being pushed down is because uh, foreign countries are showing up with cash uh, to purchase the orders. Uh, and when I told 3M that, not only did they not dispute it, I asked them if they've put out any guidance to prevent the behavior, uh, and the answer was no. Uh, and so when I asked 3M, you know, wh- what is your production? They said they're making 10 million masks a week. And when I said, great, uh, I have money, I'd like to purchase some of those, uh, they said I couldn't, uh, that they have no mask to sell me. And this is, it's criminal what's happening. And uh, that infuriated President Trump and Peter Navarro addressed it at the task force briefing. Uh, over the last several days, we've had some issues making sure that all of the, the, the production that 3M does around the world, enough of it is coming back here to the right places. So what's going to happen with the signing of that order in Trump time is we're going to resolve that issue with 3M probably by tomorrow close of business because we can't afford to lose days or hours, even minutes in this crisis. 
You know, I uh, find Peter Navarro to be a little bit too enthusiastic about uh, ordering American companies around as the point man for Defense Production Act issues. So I'm just I'm just asking a question. Are global companies only allowed to go in one direction, meaning the American direction? I think what Peter Navarro said is more fair, which is the idea is enough being held back for America, enough of 3M's production, because as the admiral pointed out, you have had, I don't remember the exact figure, but we're in the tens of millions of N95 masks that have been distributed. I, I sympathize with the Florida uh, management, uh, emergency management person, but I think it's a little bit more complicated than just uh, berating 3M. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II, and of course he hosts Special Report, which everybody knows. Brad, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Not lately. The president's <laughs> taken over. Special yeah, well, Report, that's uh, true. That is it's true. Like a defense production of, uh, <laughs> of my hour. Is Peter Navarro pushing you around too? I don't know. Maybe I'm not 3M, but he does take my hour. This is where you have to use your influence as uh, a leading light of the D.C. press corps to tell some of your uh, colleagues. Stop asking redundant questions. You go. You only get to ask the same question three times, not six, and that'll no, that'll tighten true. it up. Yeah, that is true. Uh, John Roberts, though, has been good when he presses on yeah. some of those issues. He really gets to the heart of it. No, he's been great, and the and the president, and the administration should be pressed on these matters from every direction. There's no problem with uh, with pointed questions. It's just uh, silly ones or redundant ones. How many times do you have to answer the same thing? But going back to the Defense Production Act. Um, so this is this is really interesting because there is some tension here from a lot of different directions, from the private sector, from, you know, erstwhile conservatives like myself and who appreciate that Trump was initially restrained on invoking it because he understands the precedent that it sets. And, and we shouldn't be enthusiastic to do it, particularly when you generally have private sector preemptively volunteering. This is another one of those difficult decisions that requires a balance. It does. And listen, the. Uh default for someone from the business world and a Republican is to say that business, you know, with some coordination can work this out and can do it. The problem is, is that the scale of this is so huge that it becomes something that needs a real top-down organization. And I heard an interview yesterday with Lieutenant General Honoré, who obviously headed up all of the logistics for those hurricanes uh, down in New Orleans and and other places. You know, he he was kind of baffled by the the structure as it's set up now and uh, through FEMA. And the reason that that happens and that the military comes in and the logistics chain is set up is because they've done it like this in the military forever, number one. Number two is that it takes out some of the possibility of scandal and some profiteer in some company – that is, you know, taking advantage of a crisis. But here's the thing. Um, you know, the military has its own problems, too, and, and government agencies have their own problems, too, with regulations and, you know, interagency coordination since they're not used to doing it. So, for example, this story in the New York Times yesterday, if it's true, only 20 patients had been transferred to the USNS Comfort outside New York, and the, uh, the USN. S. Mercy in Los Angeles had a total of 15 patients, and partly, according to medical professionals, is it's the strictures that the military has instituted with respect to taking patients on board. Yeah, and that's a problem, too. I mean, those are supposed to be valves for those hospitals to put the other patients who are not COVID-19 onto them. If there are any kind of restrictions, uh, that becomes harder, and suddenly it's a logistical hurdle that you're like, 
is this just a picture of a vote that we have, or are we going <laughs> to actually use this thing? Right. A, a regular panelist on your program, Kim Strassel, over at uh, Wall Street Journal, had an interesting piece uh, yesterday about the COVID-19 test that all politicians face and how some are choosing to um, to seize the moment, some uh, being sort of post-partisan like Gavin Newsom, others being bitterly partisan like, uh, uh, as Kit Strassel documented, Nancy Pelosi. But it's interesting, yesterday something happened a little bit different. So Joe Biden had this press availability, you know, via his uh, compound there in Delaware, and uh, he struck a, a very different tone. It was less accusatory. He was asked a question about uh, this uh, possible phone call between he and President Trump to talk about the response. And he and he, he said the phrase, you know, he could learn stuff. You know, I've got some ideas and maybe he can learn some of the things that we experienced in handling H1N1, Obama, Biden, uh, both the things that we did right as well as the things that we didn't. It, it was a rare sort of um, moment of uh, not uh, just attacking President Trump and the response and sticking to the sort of Pelosi talking points about it. Well, see, politically, I think that that's how Joe Biden breaks through. If he suddenly comes off as the adult in the room above Democrats' uh, partisanship, and it's not about hating President Trump, but it's about helping the country, if that's the message, then suddenly when you get to the fall, if he's campaigning on that, there are some people who will say, listen, I'm, you know, moderate Republicans, suburban Republicans who say, oh, OK, I've done this. Let's give this other one guy a shot. Uh, and that's how he's hoping to, to, you know, get get voters, I think, because stirring the base is it, Trump, I think, wins that battle um, because he can stir the base better than most. Yeah. He is Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, a special report, uh, usually when he's not interrupted by the COVID task force briefings. <laughs> Best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Brett, thanks as always for joining us. So I'm changing the, the tagline on my show, Fair, Balanced, and Unafraid, to We Are One Day Closer to Getting Through This. I like it. Uh, that's a lot better than the hysterical chirons and taglines of, you know, death virus and so forth. I like that. For, Forward-looking. <laughs> All good. right, guys. Take care. In addition to picking up uh, Brett Baer's book on FDR, as well as watching him on special report when he airs, of course, when he's not preempted by the task force briefings, uh, you should uh, also this weekend check out No Safe Spaces, which is now available for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. This is uh, 2019's number one political documentary brought to us by our friend Dennis Prager at Adam Carolla that focuses on how free speech and free thought is under attack in America on college campuses and social media platforms, of course, in Hollywood. It's a film that illustrates how America is an exceptional. It's both entertaining and edifying. Support a film that shares your values. Go to nosafespaces.com and check out No Safe Spaces this weekend. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, journalism professors are on the job. You'll be happy to know they've been uh, monitoring Fox News. 74 journalism prof uh, professors accuse Fox News of spreading coronavirus misinformation. An open letter to Fox News heads Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch yesterday saying that uh, the Fox News coverage of the COVID-19 outbreak 
is a danger to public health. The network's coverage is a danger to public health. Mm -hmm. The letter reads in part, viewers of Fox News, including the president of the United States, have been regularly subjected to misinformation relayed by the network, false statements downplaying the prevalence of COVID-19 and its harms, misleading recommendations of activities that people should undertake to protect themselves and others, including casual recommendations of untested drugs, false assessments of the value of measures urged upon the public by their elected political leadership and public health authorities. Mm -hmm. They uh, specifically uh, cited Sean Hannity, Steve Hilton, and Tucker Carlson as offenders. Uh, And then there's uh, this delicious element of the letter. Inexcusably, Fox News has violated elementary canons of journalism. In doing so, it has contributed to the spread of a grave pandemic. Fox News is spreading the virus, literally, is what they accuse. Urgently, therefore, in the name of both good journalism and public health, we call upon you to help protect the lives of all Americans, including your elderly viewers, by ensuring that the information you deliver is based on scientific facts. That's interesting. Danger to public health violated the canons of journalism. Um, There was no open letter issued by these professors to CBS News that was caught earlier this week, as we reported on the show, using footage from Italy to show a full ICU with doctors tending to victims of COVID-19 when reporting on the conditions in New York hospitals. Italy's healthcare system, which we know, facts, has been overwhelmed by the virus. New York City's, New York State's, certainly facing a challenge, being the uh, location of the greatest outbreak in the country. But the resources brought to bear in New York City and New York State uh, by the federal government, as well as state and local government, of course, dwarfs anything that happened in northern Italy or Italy nationally. Hmm. No, no open letter there. No open letter to ABC News uh, earlier this year when they used the footage from a Kentucky gun range to, as uh, the front in Syria after President Trump announced he was withdrawing troops from Syria and the whole matter of, you know, he was abandoning our Kurdish allies. You remember. No, no open letter there. Uh huh. And then uh, former USA Today, uh, former USA Today White House correspondent and columnist Richard Benedetto had a piece earlier this week at RealClearPolitics.com on the epidemic of media partisanship. Just looking at the Washington Post also did not receive an open letter from these 79 journalism professors. The page one banner headline splashed across the full six column width in bold type. Death toll surges past 2,000 in the United States. And then they'll just rinse and repeat that in subsequent days, as now we're north of 6,000, as you know. To dramatically illustrate the point, though, this is an underreported example of the CBS editing mistake, as it was called. These editing mistakes, uh, always mistakes that were not caught by many, many people, not just the presenter, but also the producers. Where are these fact-checkers? too, that the media loves to refer to when convenient. And the mistakes, as we note here, always in the direction of painting the Trump administration in the most negative light possible. It's curious. Always mistakes in a particular direction. Anyway, back to this. 
death toll surges past 2000 in the United States to dramatically illustrate the point in the Washington Post. The paper carried a photo of a masked of, of, of uh, face masked military police carrying a coffin. Uh huh. But the caption tells us the coffin was not in the United States, but in Italy, where the death toll had surpassed 10,000 at that point. You're doing a story about the death toll in the U.S. and you use a picture of mass military police carrying a coffin from Italy. Is that disingenuous? When people uh, glance at the headline may miss the caption. Is that uh, abiding the canons of journalism, professors? Benedetto goes on to just give a review of the headlines from the Washington Post front page on March 29th earlier this week. The U.S. economy's downturn has exposed pre-existing flaws inside Trump's risky push to reopen the country. World's poor face grave new hardships while in isolation. States need uh, states needs overwhelm unprepared stockpile. Uh, so many of these have been addressed, but they're pushing a narrative that's twofold, right? Apocalypse and the under response or incompetent response of President Trump. Because there's no such thing as an overreaction. No matter how draconian the response to the point of shutdowns, uh, hotlines so you can snitch on your neighbors, financial reward programs in places like L.A. so you can snitch on your neighbors. Nothing in that direction. Surveillance. Nothing in that direction. Shutting down churches, arresting. Nothing in that direction is an overreaction or of any concern. Constitutional liberties aren't a concern. Economic well-being of tens of millions of Americans, really hundreds of millions of Americans at this juncture, not a concern. All It's because they have to focus all their resources, talk about resource allocation, direct all their resources to, it's the apocalypse, and no matter what Trump is doing, It's not enough. And no matter what anybody else is doing in the 50 states, it's not too much. And we're going to have conversations about journalists uh, accusing Fox News personalities and Fox News just generally as an outlet of false statements, downplaying the prevalence and our misleading recommendations of activities uh, false assessments of the value of measures and so on and so forth. Recommendations of untested drugs. No, we're having conversations about those things. Uh, I wonder, did they issue these um, open letters uh, also to the modelers, various uh, academic institutions around the world that were so far off? No, not that. Or the media that covered those models as received wisdom rather than as models that had certain assumptions that were untested and projections based on those assumptions that are likely to change as we get more real world information like testing data. Is that the way that uh, it was presented by all those media outlets that are allegedly abiding the canons of journalism, contextual and consequential information, as opposed to just information without either one of those things in the uh, interest of driving hysteria, the apocalypse prong of the two prongs, of the media narrative? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. And this is an industry that's talking amongst itself right now about a taxpayer-funded bailout. Quite a group, isn't it? And I'm not just talking about the professors. 
This is the Dan Prof Show. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, Dr. Tony Fauci. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, which feels like a couple of lifetimes ago, because every day is sort of a lifetime with uh, the uh, coronavirus pandemic. But he said uh, the coronavirus was 10 times as lethal as the flu. Well, how does he know that? Looking at uh, real-time data, which, as we know, is incomplete and is difficult, thus, to use as the basis for accurate modeling, as we've seen with the revisions, significant revisions down of models like the one emanating out of Imperial College London. A uh, interview done by Peter Robinson for his Uncommon Knowledge program, which is always good, with the Hoover Institution's Dr. Jay Bhutacharya on, on the premise of some of the shelter-in-place orders. What we know or can reasonably hypothesize based on the data, Dr. Bhutacharya is also an economist. What's Dr. Fauci up to when he says this is 10 times more lethal than the flu? He cannot know that. He should not be saying that. He cannot know, can he? He doesn't Which know. He doesn't know. Yeah. And he can't know because nobody has done the serologic test means how many people in the population have antibodies to the virus. So that's what you need to know. Okay. So done like that. So he can't know that. Nobody knows that. So he's reflecting is his guess on what that is. I'm reflecting my guess on what it is. The fact is neither of us know it. Neither of us know that number because there's no scientific test yet done on or no scientific study done to establish that number in any broad population. And uh, the doctor went on to point out, look, reasonable, competent epidemiologists, his colleagues, disagree with him. Different models, different assumptions, different expectations. But until you get the seriological data that he's talking about, until you, and by the way, he's uh, starting his own experiment in Santa Clara in California next week, and he hopes with some colleagues to model the entire country with seriological data because of the the test the FDA just approved for antibodies uh, by month's end. But what he suggests, they're just limitations. So, yes, uh, adults have to make decisions with imperfect information in real time. But the pronouncements that are being made that justify that are used as justification for some of the more draconian decisions that have been made, arguably draconian, depending on your perspective, there should be a qualification for what we actually know versus what we're purporting to know. I think that's the doctor's point. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Philippe Lamont. He is a Ph.D. candidate in philosophy at Cornell University who specializes in the philosophy of science and logic. So he's a double threat in his own right as well. Philippe, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. How do you react to uh, Dr. Bhattacharya's uh, response to Dr. Fauci's pronouncement on lethality? Well, um, so I agree that we can't know. Uh, like there are uh, so many uncertainty about uh, so many parameters and variables that it's, it's basically impossible to, to know for sure, uh, about, at least about the fatality rate. So I agree with that. Um, one thing we can note, though, uh, is the effect it has in terms of how much stress it's putting hospitals under. So I've looked at the data for France, 
and I've compared um, uh, how many people have been admitted to ICU in France during the past 10 flu seasons. And my conclusion was that uh, even under very up, so we are already right now, right now, not, uh, not talking about uh, uh, what's going to happen during the rest of the year, but right now uh, we have about 6,000 people currently in ICU in France. So just to give you an idea, even during the worst flu season uh, in the past 10 years in France, there has never been more than uh, 2,900 no, 2, people approximately admitted to ICU because of the flu. So this doesn't tell you uh, much about the fatality rates, right? Uh, but what it does tell you is that this thing is definitely putting hospitals under a lot more stress, and I mean a lot more stress than, uh, than the flu has ever done uh, before. And again, like keep in mind that this is 6,000 people, that's the number of people are currently in ICU, but that's not counting the over 4,000 people who died in hospitals, almost all of whom were in ICU. So we're talking about at least 10,000 people who went to ICU at least. This is not counting people who have, been, who have left ICU because they got better, although probably there are much fewer of those because you stay a long time in ICU. So I think that I agree with the claim that we don't know what the fatality rate is yet and that we probably won't know for a little while. I agree with the urgency of doing a, a random serological study to, to find that out, to, to, to get better data on this. But I don't think that uh, it should prevent us from uh, taking very strong measures uh, because it seems to me that even though we are in this position of uncertainty, uh, we have enough reasons to fear that something really bad is going to happen unless we take pretty serious steps to prevent it. I want to, I want to, yeah, I want to pick up on our discussion right there. Uh, we'll be back with more from Philippe Lamont. He is a PhD candidate in philosophy at Cornell who specializes in philosophy of science and logic. More right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Philippe Lamont. He is a PhD candidate in philosophy at Cornell University, specializes in philosophy of science and logic, and uh, he's written a compelling piece in nationalreview.com. Complicated mathematical models are not substitutes for common sense, and we were just discussing some of his uh, data research with respect to France. Uh, and you were talking about uh, hospitalizations and the stress that uh, coronavirus infections are putting on hospitals in France. Certainly that's the same in the United States, particularly where there have been significant outbreaks like in New York City. Um, but um, comparing it to the flu, I mean, if, if we can't compare sort of the response, the, uh, the governmental response to uh, the flu, because this is different than the flu, in terms of things like shutting down an economies or issuing shelter-in-place orders. I'm not sure we can compare the last 10 years of flu data in terms of stress on hospital because, right, the last 10 years of flu, we've had uh, flu vaccines and we've had antiviral therapies. So what we're really talking about here is uh, the uncertainty about treating this, even from an antiviral perspective, much less a vaccine, more so than necessarily knowing what either the hospital, the the hospitalization rates would be, or the fatality rates, because we still don't have a denominator. Sure. So, um, 
like the reason I looked at ICU specifically is because uh, France put a, a very thorough monitoring system in place after the H1N1 pandemic in 2009. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, based on the criteria, so, so they, they, I've read like papers that describe the criteria uh, uh, for being included in the cost, and it seems to be very, very similar and very comparable to what we're seeing for admissions to ICU. Uh, based on the statements by the head of the French National Health Agency today. Uh, so I think those are pretty comparable. I agree that if we look at hospitalization in general, then, you, you know, this might be biased because people may freak out more with this one and, like, maybe more likely to go to the hospital and be admitted even out of caution by doctors. But this is going to be much less true for uh, admissions to ICU. Uh, uh, so, well, uh, and, and, and what, what I can tell you is, like, even even on optimistic assumption, it's going to be ten times as much, probably more, when it's always said enough. So, one point you make is very important. And I agree with it. Is that we have no vaccine, so uh, this doesn't necessarily say much about the intrinsic dangerousness of this virus compared to the flu. I agree with this, but uh, the fact is that we don't have a vaccine, so. Uh, Knowing that perhaps it's very possible, I don't know, that this thing intrinsically is not that much more dangerous than the flu, uh, it's not going to help because, it's again, it's just a fact that we have to deal with right now that we have no vaccine for this thing. So uh, nobody is starting with immunity. I mean, no, some people must have it. It's, we don't know exactly, as you said, because we haven't done. I right. Know, I mean, uh, our CDC, uh, uh, the CDC director in America says you could have 25 percent of the population that's in fact that uh, has had it or has had it is asymptomatic. Well, I mean, that would wildly change any modeling on hospitalization rates, much less uh, lethality rates. Well, sure. But when you look at uh, when you look at uh, the proportion of tests that come back positive in various countries, including in Italy. So I looked, for instance, at the Itali Italian data because the Italian government releases the pretty thorough data on, on, online like every day. And if you look at the, the rate of tests that come back positive, even in Italy, that's been pretty badly affected. It's about 20 percent right now. Now, those are probably you'd think that those uh, those would be biased upwards because presumably uh, that they don't have enough tests. They are much less than the U.S., uh, still more than France, but much less than the U.S., uh, like their testing capacity is not as, as big. So you'd think it'd be biased upward because presumably the ones they're testing are, I mean, we know the ones they're testing are people with symptoms who presumably yes, right. are more likely Correct. to be positive. Than right. So, so, um, like, uh, so it seems that, like you'd think that 20% would be an upper bound of the, the, the rate of infection. It's probably much lower than that. I mean, it's not clear, you know, that this is tricky. There are, like, ways in which you could imagine that this would be misleading. Uh, I think like uh, all data on testing are very poor quality right now because we don't know much about exactly what the testing regimes, different policies are in different places, how they change over time, etc. But still, the, the, if you look at other countries like Iceland, where I, I think it's about like 6.5% of the tests that came back positive. So yeah, sure, it's, it's possible. Again, I'm not denying that it's possible that much a much greater proportion of the population has been infected than we think right now. That like uh, what at least most people think. Uh, but uh, of course, it's also possible that uh, only a 
relatively small proportion of the population has been infected. Right. And that, well, uh, fatality rate is as bad as we fear, you know. So well, we but, don't know. I agree we don't know. Right. And, and, and the problem is that the reporting on this um, and the, 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 the tickers that have been established to present to, to provide the, the glide path for reporting on this, which is just number of cases, generally speaking, number of cases and and uh, and death. And, you know, if you want to play that game, you can play it in a lot of different directions to justify all kinds of policies. So, for example, you could compare Sweden to, say, France, a Sweden which does not have a national shutdown, which uh, businesses are open and schools are open. Uh, and you have uh, Sweden coming in with a lethality rate. If you did this, if you just based it on these numbers that are being largely presented by the media, a lethality rate that's half that of France right now, which is in shutdown mode, or half that of Britain right now, which is in shutdown mode. So that could lead one to say, well, because of those numbers, we should just emulate Sweden and we don't need a shutdown. I'm not advocating that policy. I'm just saying that you can make these arguments if you manipulate the data in these specious ways. So I completely agree. Like I think that it's very important if you advocate for a shutdown and that when you do so, you insist that you're advocating for a shutdown, not because you know what's going to happen, but because you don't. Because and you want to find and, and out. Also, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You want to find, you want to give yourself the time to find out, which also means that you have to be willing and ready to change your position as more data, better quality data comes in and possibly lift the shutdown. Because I also don't want this thing to just Stay, I don't want to stay confined like in France. I'm in France right now, and we've been confined for three weeks. And you know, I, it's like we at some point we're gonna have to come out of this. So we should go in a shutdown. I think we've already done in France, but so I'm okay with this. But uh, we should keep in mind that at some point we're gonna have to come out. So we should already be discussing strategies to come out of this uh, at, at the lowest cost possible. And we should also again be very clear. Uh, when you advocate a shutdown, that it's because we don't know, not because we know, and that we want to give ourselves the time to get better data and actually find out. He is Philippe Lemoine. He is a PhD candidate in uh, in philosophy at Cornell University, specializes in the uh, philosophy of science and logic. Philippe, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Thanks for having me. And I know it's going to be a you'll know this is the Dan Prof show welcome back to the Dan Prof show and uh, while I appreciate uh, Gavin Newsom governor of California playing it straight with respect to the federal response and the responsiveness that he's detailed President Trump has provided the state of California with respect to resources and conversations about the resources they need, that he's resisted the temptation just to pile on. I mean, it's also in his own political interest, too, as somebody who clearly aspires for the White House to be seen as postpartisan, but nonetheless playing it straight. And uh, actually, California, you know, doing a pretty good job since the outbreak of holding steady, uh, not seeing the sort of spike that we've seen in places like New York and New Jersey. But let's not forget who Gavin Newsom is. And he reminded us at a uh, media availability when he was asked a question about whether this crisis provides the proverbial opportunity to reshape America in a more progressive direction. The richest and the poorest state with a number of the most impoverished metros 
in the country. And we've long been struggling to address those issues. So I see this quite uh, substantively through that lens, that equity lens, looking at those folks that never fully recovered. And you look at medium wages for folks uh, coming out of 08, 09 and the Great Recession that haven't fully recovered, even today that are struggling. Uh, and so what is going to happen to those folks in this current crisis? Uh, and what's the opportunity to your question uh, for reimagining uh, a more progressive era as it relates to uh, capitalism. And I'm, I'm a capitalist. Mm. I'm a small business owner. I'm a job creator. Well, my customers are the job creators. I'm a beneficiary of their support. Uh, and that helps build that demand that allows me to hire more people. And so as a former business owner, now governor, uh, I have had that experience and I have that appreciation of the importance uh, of consumer confidence, consumer spending, and a vibrant middle class. And so, yes, forgive me for being long-winded, uh, but absolutely, we see this as an opportunity to reshape uh, the way we do business. Yeah, and reshape the way we do business in a more progressive fashion with respect to capitalism and his uh, tribute to capitalism as to uh, its benefits to him personally, notwithstanding. Reshape capitalism in a more progressive way. That's just a fancy way of saying socialism. And they see that opportunity. That's the sort of sentimentality you get from the left, and it leads to barbarism. And uh, let me give you an example of uh, the unintended consequences of just uh, operating in the direction of sentimentality. The ban on plastic bags. San Francisco's has been in place for 13 years. It's at the forefront of uh, such bans to assuage the demands of the fact-free left that uh, worship at the altar of Gaia. Eliminating, reversing their ban on plastic bags will now prohibit the use of reusable bags the city leaders had previously championed. Use your NPR cloth tote bag. Well, no, now you can't because it could be a carrier of the virus. Plastic bags back in fashion uh, because they were always the safest, cheapest alternative, well, option for retailers when it came to helping people carry their goods out of the store. That was sacrificed because sentimentality. Now it's being reintroduced because real world. There's a lesson there. It's a small thing indicative of a big thing like a governor talking about how we're going to reshape capitalism in a more progressive way post-COVID-19. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. 701,000, the job loss in March. And remember, March is just the tip of the spear when it comes to the job hemorrhaging occurring because of the economic shutdown in response to the coronavirus. Steve Mnuchin thus was an important man at the task force briefing yesterday, providing details on the aspects of the disaster relief, both for businesses and individuals. Let's start with the businesses, fewer than 500 employees and the payroll protection program loans. You get the money, you'll get it the same day. You use this to pay your workers. Please bring your workers back to work. If you've let them go, you have eight weeks plus overhead. This is a very important program. 
Uh, I'm pleased to announce uh, we are going to raise the interest rate on these loans. And again, the interest rate is paid for as part of the program. The borrower doesn't have to pay this to 1%. Uh, we had announced it was going to be 50 basis points. We've heard from some smaller community banks that their deposit costs, uh, even though the government's borrowing at three or four basis points, this is on average a 90-day loan to make this attractive for community banks we've agreed to, to raise the interest rate. Again, I encourage everybody, take out the Paycheck Protection Program. One thing that's interesting about that, talking to some small business owner friends of mine, is, and I understand they had to be somewhat indiscriminate because of the speed at which they were trying to respond, but you have businesses that are healthy. They were not going to lay anyone off. You're basically giving them free money, right? Uh, one business friend of mine, like, I'm, I'm getting money two and a half times my payroll, available money for free, right? Because it'll be converted to a grant from a loan because I'm not laying anybody off. And it's just sort of free money. Uh, Mnuchin also on the individual payments, since there was some discrepancy in the reporting on this, whether uh, for in, in terms of how long it would take for people who are not getting their checks direct deposited to receive their checks. The economic impact payments. Uh, I had previously said this would take us three weeks. I'm pleased to report that within two weeks, the first payments will be direct deposit into taxpayers' account. And as the president said, last night the president authorized me to say that anybody that has Social Security recipients won't need to file a new tax return, and we'll have that. If we don't have your direct deposit information, we'll be putting up a web portal so that you can put that up. Uh, it is a very large priority. The president has made clear we want to get this money quickly into your hands. And for those people that don't have access to traditional banking or are not uploading their information for direct deposit, we're still talking about weeks, not months, as was reported, to receive your individual checks, you know, for those who qualify. Remember, that's basically under 100 grand, under individuals under 150 grand for a couple. And then uh, just lastly, Mnuchin on the uh, small business, excuse me, on the employer retention tax credit for some of the uh, bigger businesses north of 500 employees. And I'm also pleased to report the employee retention credit. It's up and running. The first $10,000 of wages, you get a 50% credit. That's $5,000 per person. For everyone who's kept someone, you can immediately get that money. You can deduct it from what you owe the IRS immediately. If you don't owe us money, you'll get a refundable tax credit. So that is up and running. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Scott the Cowguy Shalady, Fox Business Regular. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So um, talking about modeling, uh, ADP predicted we'd shed 27,000 jobs the other day uh, in March. And uh, we, according to the Labor Department, shed 701,000. So another cautionary tale about modeling, uh, garbage in, garbage out. But what about that 700,000? I think that's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I'm absolutely exhausted. I've been standing on an island all by myself because it just seems to me, my gut reaction, it's my opinion and my opinion only, that this total one-size-fits-all shut the entire U.S. $20 trillion economy down has been an absolute disaster, and it's going to get a lot worse. So there are no good numbers. Every life matters. There is, um, you know, I don't mean to seem callous. You have to say that because my Twitter account is uh, full of people that wish my, my early demise. Right, um, right. It's true. Yeah, that's I know. the problem. So here's the deal, okay? It's the visible deaths versus the invisible deaths. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's 160 million working Americans out there, Dan, that have no seat at the table of all that. They've been thrown under the bus. And there are empirical numbers that you can glean from this that 
uh, death goes spikes higher in an economic downturn because of more poverty, more suicide, and more crime. It's simple. So there is another side of the coin that just doesn't get talked about. And gosh darn it, I'm so happy that we're only at 6,000 deaths here in the U.S. And I'm scared to think about what Dr. Fauci's been talking about coming around the corner here because of the shutdown. We've been expecting all these things to happen. And it's so far, I mean, it'll be great if we miss them, but it's going to be indefensible by me because everybody will say, well, you know, we missed all those numbers because we did what we did. But remember, I had enough time, you know, as soon as I felt like this world was losing its mind and, and nobody was going to be an adult in the room. So the first uh, major league, whatever sport cancels, everybody acquiesces and cancels all their sports. The first college to cancel all of their classes, every other college acquiesces and cancels. I mean, I just got in a car, Dan, uh, from uh, Portage, Indiana, where I live, and I just drove to my house in Scottsdale because I felt as though this was going to get ridiculous, and I think it has. And if I was going to be cooped up in a ridiculous spot, I wanted it to be 80 degrees and sunny with a pool in my backyard. So <laughs> I just want to say, look, so you can, we've got those, uh, oh my gosh, if we didn't do anything numbers, we would have lost 2.2 million people. And now because of the mediation, we might only lose 100 to 220 or 250, whatever that number may be. There are numbers on the other side that say that we might see as high as 32% unemployment rate and 47 million people may lose their jobs. We've already got 10 million people that have applied for uh, assistance with unemployment in the last two weeks, 10 million, right? So we're 25% away or, you know, 12% away. So you can see empirically that with every 1% bump in unemployment, that's roughly 4,000 American lives, okay? So if we do see a 30% unemployment rate, that means it will have gone up by 27,000. There's 100,000 people right there. Yeah, you know so what? There is- it, it, would be nice, it would be nice if we did a, a competing ticker, uh, economic deaths related to the COVID-19 response. You right? get absolutely slated on, on, on Twitter. I mean, like oh, I said, it's just, it's, oh. I'm so tired and, and I'm exhausted because everybody is just coming at me. But I just feel like I, all of a sudden I'm like, the, uh, you know, the, the accidental uh, you know, voice in the room for the people that have been working 40 years to watch it all go down the drain and they did not have a say at the table. That is a crime. Uh, with respect to the market, I couldn't help uh, talking to a friend watching uh, the market yesterday for a bit while having a cigar at a safe distance, of course. The market goes up on news of 6.6 million first-time filers for unemployment. I couldn't help but think of the uh, scene from The Big Short where the Christian Bale character can't understand how the bottom hasn't um, been reached and he basically says, look, I always knew the market was rigged, but I had no idea it was rigged this badly. Uh, I mean, <laughs> what is how, how how I mean, based on oil prices, based on what Trump said about uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia reducing their oil production uh, in the face of six point six million first time unemployment filers, you get a bump in the market. And look, I'm, I'm happy for it as somebody who's getting killed like everybody else. But. But what, I'm just incredulous at that. Yeah, it's a false dawn. I mean, we're going to struggle. I, I, when everybody got too overly negative and they saw that number and it was like a relief rally, like, okay, the doctor finally did give us our terminal you know, diagnosis, and they feel, feel good about that for some reason. So, look, the number that we got the earlier week, 3.28 the week earlier, that was four times larger than the previous record. And then the next week we get something that's double the four times larger record. I mean, this is insane. And it's only going to get worse from here. It's not going to get any better. So if we have these St. Louis Fed, you know, uh, ideas of 47 million people losing their jobs, you could see a six-figure toll on, on the death toll on the other side of the coronavirus, which could eclipse the total death from the virus. And I still say this, and again, I get killed for it, but I think that ultimately the economic damage will be greater than the virus ever thought it could be. 
Uh, with respect to any uh, any advice you have for people that are um, thought to, you know, essentially, is there anything I can do other than just sit here and take it? Um, you know, you hear you hear advice uh, uh, somewhat on the infotainment or, or investotainment shows, but but I mean, just sort of hard and fast, simple advice: uh, rebalancing your portfolio, converting your traditional IRA to Roth IRA, things like that. Is there anything in particular you would say to somebody who's as as you point out, particularly the person close to retirement who now is having to rethink what retirement's going to look like. Uh, that's collateral damage. And think about that. I've also, I mean, I, I, all I've had time to do is sit out in the sun and read here, right? There's a lot of statistics that are proving that it's going to be even more difficult to get a job when we come out of this because there's going to be so many old people that go thrust themselves back into the workforce because they have to. <laughs> They're not going to affect the unintended consequences. So here's what I would say. If you're just retired or about to retire, uh, you know what? Unfortunately, that's the collateral damage. You're probably going to have to work a little longer than you thought. That's going to be the case. Um, if you if you have extra cash laying around, I would be putting it in now. It's going to go lower at some point in time, but I wouldn't put it all in at once. But, I mean, these are going to look like great levels in five years, but right now you're just in the middle of a storm. All right, Scott Shalady, go take a dip in the pool. Cool off. I uh, have to. I'm sorry. Uh, we appreciate it. We like the unvarnished perspective. Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, Fox Business regular. Thanks, Scott. See ya. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, following on our discussion with Scott the Cow Guy Shalady. There's that old joke about economists. If you uh, laid all the economists in the world end to end, they couldn't reach a decision. Uh, well, uh, there seems to be consensus, generally speaking, between both market analysts and economists that the uh, payroll protection program specifically uh, is judicious, keeping people employed, keeping people on the payroll, keeping small businesses in play, making them viable throughout uh, the duration of this shutdown as uh, we deal with the viral outbreak, of course. That's good public policy or it's the best available public policy as compared to allowing the sort of displacement from jobs on a scale that we have a pretty good indication based on today's unemployment numbers is so massive and would be so costly the way that we are set up as a country these days to try to return people to productive employment uh, in the near term. That uh, as difficult as it is, even though, you know, unwinding all of the money that's been spent uh, and uh, which is frankly just implications on future tax revenue. We don't know how that all is going to play out. And I would say on the monetary side, even perhaps more so than the fiscal side, where you have the Fed being operating way beyond its charter, as we've talked about before on this show. But here's what Mad Money Kramer, Jim Kramer, said on CNBC last evening about uh, the uh, payroll protection program that uh, Steve Mnuchin uh, re-explained at Thursday night's briefing. You know, everybody's going to apply tomorrow. I mean, the, 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 it's so generous. I've got to tell you, I mean, you, you're eight weeks. If you stay open, you get a check back for what you pay for the employees, but also for a lot of your overhead. So, I mean, this is a program that if it's executed, 
will be I'm not nothing's a savior because you need to have customers. But you will be able to, in uh, in very short order, according to Secretary Mnuchin, get this money back and the banks have to be ready for it. I think it is if there's anything that's going to tide us over, it is this uh, that particular aspect, because 85 percent of America really works for small, medium sized business. Larry Kudlow, uh, president's chief economic advisor, picked up on this discussion uh, this morning on Fox, uh, sort of a two pronged discussion, one on the business side and, and secondly, on the individual side. Of course, the, the two are linked, uh, linked by jobs, linked by employment. But uh, you know what I'm saying in terms of what the specific offerings are to uh, the uh, various cohorts. So first, uh, uh, Kudlow talking about the, the business side of it, the, the PPP program, payroll protection program loans, uh, as uh, as well as uh, what the Fed is doing. I will simply say these are rough numbers. Uh, a lot of people are suffering. And I will say the weeks ahead, I think the numbers are also going to be very poor. This is an interruption of what was a very prosperous economy. It's an interruption from the virus and the necessary mitigation efforts to deal with the virus. And I also want to say that we have devoted enormous resources and work uh, with our uh, rescue package to add cash and liquidity, try to keep individuals and families, keep them afloat, keep their small businesses afloat. We've worked and coordinated with the Federal Reserve as never done before. The total package, as you may know, is $6.2 trillion. That's about a third of GDP, a third of our economy. That's how widespread and massive this is a historic effort. In other words, it's tough. Uh, reach out to those folks. It's very difficult. We're doing everything we can to deal with it and make it perhaps a little easier. We're trying to save jobs, save payrolls, and save businesses so that, and this is maybe the key point, when this virus runs its course, as it will, it is not permanent, this is a temporary issue, as it runs its course, the American economy will be ready to snap back. I believe that's going to happen well before the end of the year. And uh, Kudlow also responded to whether or not that system is ready to go, the system that was been outlined for the last several days, including a Thursday evening that's ready to go today for uh, SBA uh, uh, loan slash grant applications. Uh, Here's what Kudlow had to say. Well, I I think the information's gotten there. I mean, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin has done a, a terrific job. Uh, overseeing a, a massive program. We've never tried anything like this. Uh, $350 billion if you, if you keep your payroll intact, a 1% loan. And, and the bank participation, I mean, look, all during the week, uh, Secretary Mnuchin and others of us have been talking to the bankers. And they came in with constructive suggestions, and those have been incorporated into the plan. The plan uh, begins today, I guess, and the application should flow. You have a wide, I mean, virtually the whole banking community will take part in this. Uh, Kudlow then went on to talk about individuals and what's being done for just individuals through the uh, impact payments, as what, again, has been described that you should be familiar with at this point, particularly if you listen to this show. But nonetheless, just to provide some perspective, uh, people that have questions about, uh, you know, quasi bailouts of big industries, uh, the, the sorts of spending on the airlines and companies like Boeing versus uh, the little guys and the individual guys and gals. And uh, Kudlow put that into some perspective. 
It's not, it's this lending program, okay, it's the payroll protection. But don't forget, don't forget, we are putting out $600 billion of assistance, and on top of the, this purchasing, $600 billion for individuals, for families, for sick leave, for unemployment. 175 million Americans, that's 175 million Americans, will receive checks and other forms of assistance. It's the most remarkable thing we've ever done. And we are working hand in glove, cooperating with the Federal Reserve on their lending programs. So fiscal and monetary policy is working together. This is no, yeah. nothing like this has ever tried before. It's just There's to no keep doubt people it's a going. Keep people yeah. going. There's no. And, and uh, in addition to that, he spoke about the unemployment insurance money, the unenhanced, uh, the excuse me, enhanced unemployment insurance money uh, against the backdrop of 10 million first time unemployment claims over the last two weeks. Kudlow saying, uh, as uh, Admiral Polchak said uh, on Thursday evening about uh, medical supplies, first look up to the state because that's who's receiving the resources federal support, state management, local implementation. Same thing goes with unemployment insurance checks. States are getting the money. So if you have problems with accessing unemployment insurance through your uh, state employment security agency, look to the states. Uh, Labor Secretary Gene Scalia uh, has put the extra unemployment money, $600 per person. He has given those funds to the states, and it's up to them to distribute. We hope they execute quickly. In terms of the direct rebates, uh, tax rebates, uh, checks in the mail directly, uh, I think you're looking at a couple more weeks. Uh, as I said, that's the more or less 175 million people. That's the 1,200 uh, per person, might be uh, 3,000 per family. So, so there you go. Uh, and, uh, you know, Kudlow uh, also struck an optimistic note. He's an optimistic guy, as most supply siders are, and just said, look, the uh, virus is going to be temporary. We believe everybody believes. And so the interruption, the economic pain will be temporary. I guess uh, then we get into the question of uh, the different definitions of what constitutes temporary. This is the Dan Fox one. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, writing the New York Post. Uh, Sora Bamari says, which uh, or says when this is all over and please God, let it be sooner rather than later, of course. The populist uprising that first launched in 2016 with Brexit and the election of President Trump will only gather strength and momentum as we try to be at least in part forward looking here and uh, have conversations about what a post COVID-19 America will look like so that it's the kind of America that we want coming out of this pandemic. We're pleased to be joined by Sorab Amari, who is the op-ed editor for The New York Post and author of From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. So, Rab, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Why do you believe that uh, the uh, populist uprising that launched Brexit and Trump will only gather strength coming out of this? Well, that uprising, um, and it wasn't just in the U.S. and Britain. It's also much of the developed world, with from Brazil with Bolsonaro to um, 
nationalist movements in places like Hungary, Poland, Italy, and so forth, all of them I read as a rebellion against the liberal utopian idea of a limitless world, of absolute unlimited freedom of movement for goods, services, capital, and especially labor. A lot of it, it worked really well for a narrow slice of uh, owners of capital as well as the kind of technocratic upper middle class meritocrats who service capital. It worked well for them, but for a lot of working class, middle class people in Europe, in the United States, it's been a raw deal. It's taken away their their jobs, the security of, uh, of a certain kind of job and left them constantly insecure. And I think that the pandemic, they will read, and I think rightly so, as just the sort of ultimate expression of that world, right? A world in which um, we gave up our jobs to uh, industrial jobs, manufacturing jobs, to a Chinese regime that's our enemy, um, and the free flow of people, goods, and services also made the virus much easier to get to the United States. And in, by the way, we, we, we lost our capacity to respond in part because we had moved a lot of manufacturing of basic goods like masks and ventilators and so forth offshore to China. So you put all that together, and I think a lot of voters, the same kind of voters who are the backbone of the, of the Trump Make America Great movement, of Brexit in Britain, other places, will only double down on what they thought was wrong with the pre-Trump, pre-Brexit liberal consensus. And I suppose that uh, some of the actions that are being taken in response to some uh, behavior uh, during this crisis under the uh, heading of the Defense Production Act, like the news out yesterday about uh, 3M haggling about price and uh, additional stories about 3M selling to foreign entities as opposed to uh, U.S. entities, that only feeds the uh, the disgust and the revolt against sort of the established order that began in 2016. Absolutely. I mean, um, there is this sense, you know, I have it as, as, I mean, I'm an opinion, opinion maker, but I'm also a citizen, this sense that, um, you know, not every person who's in business, but the, the very large firms who set the agenda on the, on the global scale don't have any sense of, of loyalty to a political community like ours. It's only for their own sake and that the world that's been upheld is for their sake of their absolute freedom to sell whatever at whatever price they want, whatever. And there are exceptions to this, but you, right, you see it with 3M, you see it with others that uh, at the end of the day, the world at large is too large for the average citizen. Well, but we, it, need some, yeah. we need some political community, some boundaries, and the nation state is the best we've got. And so... I think you will see political pressure on economic actors to begin to think like that more, which is not a radical thing. It's, it's, you know, it's, you know, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, a lot of firms did think that way. Um, it's just the idea of limitless, borderless world, especially for capital, has become, has gone on hyperdrive since the end of the Cold War. And I think we'll see it be tamed by political pressure from the populist left and the populist right in the coming years. Uh, when we uh, come back, I, I want to pick up on that because that's a populist pressure, if it's brought to bear and acquiesced to, is not without consequence either. More with Sorab Amari, op-ed editor for The New York Post, author of From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. 
We'll be back with Rob right after this. If Hollywood and their pipelines, that would be the streaming services, Netflix, Amazon, Prime, Hulu, don't want you to see a film, that's why you should see it. See No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com for a limited time. This is the uh, number one political documentary of 2019. 99% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla reveal how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind, share your thoughts in so many quarters. Here's an opportunity to share a film that shares your values. Go to nosafespaces.com and check out No Safe Spaces today. Well, I think you're crazy. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Sorab Amari. He's the op editor for the New York Post and author of From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. And we're talking about uh, Sorab's observations about the populist pressure that will come from you know, both uh, ends of the spectrum with respect to um, shrinking the world, as it were, not necessarily Fortress America, but certainly more nationalist considerations for uh, capitalist operators in this country, and I wonder, though, Sorab, if, you, if you're not uh, equal, if you're not also concerned about uh, the idea of these sorts of government interventions into the marketplace, uh, like you see with the Defense Production Act, you see with the seizure of goods, like by the uh, governor of New Jersey, it's happening around the country as well. I understand time of crisis, but you know, you start to set precedents based on crises. And then you can start to redefine other things as crises, like, for example, climate change and see perhaps some of the same behavior that the the precedent setting nature of saying we believe in free markets, but only to an extent that it serves our immediate interests. Look, I mean, do I do I deny that there's such a risk? Uh, No, but I would say that the idea of a world in which private actors face no such pressures is a kind of fiction in any way. And part of the reason why our trade arrangements with China are so unfair is that they they operate with a mindset that the economy doesn't serve its own ends. It's not its own thing, whatever direction it may go. It's part of their national strategy of of improving their country, developing their country, bettering the livelihoods of Chinese people. Um, and, and they operate that way. And in the U.S., really – that it was again in the immediate post-war period. It was quite common for for the government to, to commandeer industry when national need presented it. So, do I think there is a risk of of maybe overshooting it? Sure, but I think to some extent a little bit of rebalancing away from autonomous market actors just doing their own thing, particularly large ones, toward essentially asserting. Uh, political sovereignty and ultimately saying that the, that the economic is just one aspect of who we are as a people, a little bit rebalancing, a little bit shifting in this direction is okay. And of course, as often happens, politics is cyclical. So if we overshoot, then we'll presumably through democratic deliberative process, will maybe correct for it and so forth. But right now, I think it's a healthy impetus because, I mean, again, I'm trying to Assume the voice of a typical Trump voter. Like, no, I hear okay, what you're. I hear I, what you're saying. But... I lost. I lost my manufacturing job. I got a. My grandma got a virus. Deadly. And oh, by the way, now that the, the cure requires us to even lose our kind of insecure gig industry 
jobs, jobs as well. That's that's outrageous. No, look, if you, I if you put yeah. those facts together. I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I, I'm I'm sympathetic to it. I really am. Um, and and particularly coming out of this, what we know is going to be the case is those at the you know, the upper two quintiles are going to be okay, and the the pe- the people are really going to take the brunt of this uh, economic shutdown are people in the lower three quintiles, and so those those gaps and uh, what people look like coming out of this are going to be that much more pronounced. So there's going to be that much more pressure. So I'm not disagreeing with your diagnosis. I'm just sugge- I'm just suggesting that. I think there all we also need to temper some of the cheerleading because it can manifest itself in unproductive, if if not dangerous ways. And and one is the overreach we've just been discussing. And I know you're providing, you know, a more measured response of a rebalancing. It's not sort of, you know, running, screaming in the other direction. But it's also addressing this, um, I think, false dichotomy that's presented by some on the the right, including Marco Rubio. We don't. Um, the economy is not here to serve. Uh, we're, we're not here to serve the economy. The economy is here to serve us. Well, wait a second. It treats the economy like an abstraction. Uh, it's like that's sort of boogeyman politics, the way the left plays. The economy is us. <laughs> so, I mean, th- there's, there's not a dichotomy there. Uh, of course, we're all acting in our self-interest. And w- what's the uh, Greek root of economy? Family. So the, the, it is us. So that's, I just don't like that false presentation because I think it leads people down a different sort of primrose path. I get it. What I would say is that the economy is us, but it is not the whole of us. In other words, we're uh, not just economic man and woman. I agree. Right, right. I mean, insofar as under Marxism, the view was that human beings are just homo economicus. Right. You're just a producer under a material condition. Sometimes a kind of libertarian capitalist mindset can mirror that, that mentality, even though obviously it doesn't, it comes out with a different conclusion of what to do about it. But that, Ultimately, human beings are also moral creatures uh, and political animals as well, as Aristotle would say. So, yeah, I agree with you. The economy is us. But ultimately, the purpose of political community is to serve the common good. And often free markets do that, by the way. I don't deny it. I mean, I I watch it work in so many. I live in New York City, so I see how markets do miraculous things. I don't deny it. But that that they cannot be treated as the sort of fetish that we can't question at all. Let me, uh, let me, and I think yeah. guys like Rubio and Senator Hawley are beginning to wise up to this and it's good politics for the right too. It's not just, I, I think it's moral, but it's also, I think it's very good politics as the Trump phenomenon has shown. I want to get your, your, uh, answers as, as a man of faith. And that's what your book is about too. your journey to the Catholic faith. Um, just generally speaking across, uh, the, you know, every demographic in this country, um, have we lost the notion, the understanding that nature bats last. Do you see a, a hubris here with respect to the belief that uh, we, through government or the combination of government plus animating the private sector and the, through turning dials and pulling levers, that we can conquer death? I mean, I, I want to give one careful answer, which is that, you know, I, I, as a Catholic, I completely favor doing within reason what we can to preserve life. Mm-hmm. That said, I mean, I think that's a very old message in, in Catholic thought, the sense that the things that we make with our, our handiwork, the things we can measure with our scientific instruments, is not the whole of truth. And so that kind of Promethean temptation to think of ourselves as, you know, masters of the globe, bestriding the world with, with scientific knowledge under one arm and, and economic might on the other, well, 
you know, nature, or you could say providence, have, has a power to humble that from time to time. And I think that was a message that Pope Francis sent in his extraordinary Orvi at Orvi address, of, of, I think it was just last Friday. Um, you know, he said, uh, we've, we've, frankly, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but we've become too arrogant. Sometimes, you know, uh, we, we, our, our sense that we're masters of, of our destiny 100% get confronted by realities like this, and I think people of faith have a, an insightful interpretation of that. Yes, so Rob Amari, op-ed editor for the New York Post, author of the book, From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Always a good talk. Thank you, sir. She could tell right away that I was bad to the bone. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And here is uh, something I can certainly assist with, willing to volunteer much like I was willing to volunteer for uh, the to be in the experimental group for the uh, home cooked remedy or antiviral that the uh, Belarus president proposed to treat COVID nineteen, which is uh, vodka and taking saunas. Yeah, happy to be in the experimental group. I'm also happy to help with the apparent surfeit of chicken wings in America. The wing business is totally in the gutter, said Stan Neva, the owner of Northwest Meat Company in Chicago supplying meat to restaurants, hotels, and clubs. The only way we're selling wings is for curbside to go. Uh, we have one pizza place in town that does carry out, ordered some wings, but that's been about it. We probably lost 30 to 40 sports bars. Most chicken wings in the United States are eaten at restaurants and bars, said a uh, senior vice president for Erner Berry, a commodities market reporting firm in uh, New Jersey. And uh, what's happened with No March Madness uh, and all the wings that were prepared to supply the sports bars and restaurants for everybody watching NCAA basketball, and not to mention you know, opening day, the beginning of ba- baseball season, is that there is a uh, an abundance of chicken wings. And this is also sort of a lesson in how supply chains work. U.S. Department of Agriculture talking about it. ton of wings for March Madness. Suppliers stocked a lot of wings. Since there was no March Madness, they're trying to push them to retail. However, selling restaurant wings at the grocery store is not as straightforward as it seems, said the uh, commodities uh, analyst of the industry. For one, food service providers are set up to process and package wings in large volumes. They're not always able to repackage them to be retail friendly. When you sell to a food service, that's a big bulk container. When you sell to me and you... It has to be a tray or a bag that we can pick up. Not all facilities can do that. The commercial market and the retail market are not the same thing. And interestingly, that's sort of the same thing with the toilet paper. A really good piece in uh, Medium that one of the uh, underreported explanations for the toilet paper shortage, and uh, not just in America, but also uh, as reported in Australia and Britain, Hong Kong too, is the way that toilet paper is bifurcated. There's a commercial market, and there's a retail market. And as Georgia Pacific, leading toilet paper manufacturer based in Atlanta, estimates the average household will use 40% more toilet paper than usual, particularly after you have the wings, because you're going to the bathroom not more, but at home more versus in your office setting. Turns out that the commercial and consumer toilet paper markets are largely separate within the industry. So it's a supply chain issue as much as it is a hoarding issue. The uh, author of this piece writes, talk to anyone in the industry. They'll tell you that toilet paper made for the commercial market is fundamentally different than the toilet paper you buy in a store. It comes in huge rolls, too big to fit on most home dispensers. The paper itself is thinner, more utilitarian. 
comes individually wrapped and is shipped on huge pallets rather than in brightly branded packs of six or 12. Not only is not the same product, it often doesn't come from the same mills, added Jim Luke, a professor of economics who once worked as the head of planning for a wholesale paper distributor. So, for instance, he says Procter & Gamble, which owns Charmin, is huge in the retail consumer market, but it doesn't play in the institutional market, the the, uh, commercial market at all. So just a little bit of lesson in supply chains and economics here, both with respect to supply, with respect to uh, surpluses as well as shortages. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Tony Fauci wasn't at the task force briefing yesterday, but he did make the time to go on with Gloria Vanderbilt's kid. In that discussion with Anderson Cooper, Fauci said this. Some states are still not issuing stay-at-home orders. I mean... Whether there should be a federally mandated uh, directive for that or not, that I guess that's more of a political question. But just scientifically, yeah. doesn't everybody have to be on the same page with this stuff? Yeah, I, I think so, Anderson. I don't understand why that's not happening. As you said, you know, the tension between federally mandated versus states' rights to do what they want is something I don't want to get into. But if you look at what's going on in this country, I just don't understand why we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. We really should be. Well, look at um, Scandinavian Nordic countries. They're about the size of some of our bigger states. Are they responding the same with Tony Fauci? Uh, does, does he uh, wish for one world government where every where we'd have a global stay in shelter order? Because obviously the situation in the Dakotas is very different than the situation in New York City, isn't it? And uh, despite what they've suggested about uh, Every place in America has the potential to be New York City. The trajectory of this just doesn't really bear that out. Here's the other point about the data. The data is so important because it's the basis for so many decisions, both in terms of resource allocation as well in terms of federal policy and economic policy at both the federal and state levels. The economic health, again, I will continue to repeat as often as Dr. Burke says granularity, economic health inextricably linked to public health. Can't assess them in silos. You have to be an adult and assess them holistically. And so this interview by uh, Peter Robinson on his uh, excellent interview program, Uncommon Knowledge, with the Hoover Institution's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who is both a medical doctor as well as a uh, licensed economist, if you will. He's also got an economics background. Here's what he had to say as somebody who is right now doing the modeling work that other econometricians and public health professionals are attempting to do. What's Dr. Fauci up to when he says this is 10 times more lethal than the flu? He cannot know that. He should not be saying that. He cannot know. Can he? He doesn't know. He doesn't know. Yeah. And he can't know because nobody has done the serologic test means how many people in the population have antibodies to the virus. So that's what you need to know. Okay. No test so, has been done like that. So we, he can't know that. Nobody knows that. So he's reflecting is his guess on what that is. I'm reflecting my guess on what it is. The fact is neither of us know it. Neither right. of us know that number because there's no scientific test yet done on or no scientific study done 
to establish that number in any broad population. And in point of fact, uh, FDA just approved a antibody test and uh, Dr. Bhattacharya is going to go into the field in Santa Clara next week to deploy it to try to get some of the data from which modeling can be done and frankly get enough data over the next three weeks to model the whole country by month's end. Yeah, so we have to run studies and that's that's why I've been working on the last uh, last couple of weeks um, basically full time, actually three weeks full time. Uh, it's, so uh, what you need is a sample of people in the population who are, I mean, essentially representative of the population, some population. You need uh, a test that can measure antibodies in the blood. And those are actually only have been approved in the last week and so in the U.S. And to be fair to Fauci and Burks, um, there has been discussion over the last several days at the briefings of these antibody tests and some pressing to deploy antibody tests, even though Fauci downplayed them as our number one priority down the list of priorities. I don't really understand why you can't do them in parallel fashion. The PCR test that can detect the virus before even a person even knows they have symptoms. And then also this antibody test so you can do better modeling and thus make better public health and economic decisions based on better numbers. In point of fact, the CDC director, Dr. Redfield, said he uh, projected out that as many as 25 percent of Americans may have uh, gotten it and be asymptomatic. So they're not included in the data, both with respect to caseload and then by extension with respect to anything resembling an accurate lethality rate or hospitalization rate for that matter. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Kevin Pham. He is a doctor as well. He's a contributor to the Daily Signal, former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Pham, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, do you agree with really all the medical professionals and some of the economists, including a Nobel Prize winner, Paul Romer, writing in the Wall Street Journal, that uh, the way out of this, both in terms of uh, intelligent decision making uh, over the next uh, four weeks or however long it takes, is testing to get more accurate data that we can have more confidence in about the trajectory of the spread and the lethality of the spread so we can make better resource allocation decisions and better decisions about reopening our economy? There are actually very few things that all professionals agree upon on any given topic, but I think testing is one thing that nearly all of us do agree on. And we need to get on get onto a more active testing regimen because we'll be able to find, once we, once we do it on a more broad basis, we'll be able to find the cases where they are and then find those cases, isolate them, and then do the contact tracing and isolate those people as well. And then once we do that, then we're really taking the fight to the virus rather than waiting for the virus to come into the hospital. As the virus comes into the hospital, we're, we're fighting on a defensive battle, and that's, what, that's what's going on, largely what's going on in the country right now, and, and it's definitely what's going on in New York. And, and, and with respect to that, other than the availability of the competing tests, and they're not really in competition, but you know what I mean, is there any reason why you can't do them simultaneously? You can't uh, move, uh, continue to move on the testing on parallel tracks? Uh, there's no reason that you can't. In fact, there's reasons that you should be doing both of the types of testing. Because the serological testing, the testing for the antibodies, that doesn't come until about two weeks after after you get the disease, depending on which antibodies you're testing for. Uh, whereas the PCR test will really tell you if you're sick right now or you're infected right now. Because the serological test, they, they will not come back, they will not come back positive until several days after the symptoms have started. So to get the asymptomatic patients, you need the PCR testing. 
So you really, we really need to be doing both at the same time. I want to go back to uh, something that you said, which echoes what uh, Dr. Bhattacharya said, but it uh, is not reflected in so much of the discourse, political discourse and coverage of the political discourse. Uh, I just hey, just listen to the scientists. Just listen to the scientists. Listen to the doctors. It turns out scientists and doctors of good faith and equal competence are coming to very different conclusions based on this imperfect data that we have. So it's not just so easy to wave off an answer to a question about what should be done by saying, listen to the scientists, is it? I think that's completely right. An expert in anything knows a lot about that subject, but knows doesn't necessarily know very much about any other sub, um, subject. And with regards to this situation and how it pertains to every individual in the country in dealing with their, their financials, I may know a lot about disease and disease burden and all that, I don't know very much about what's happening in your life and how all this is affecting you. People should not be waving off, like especially people who are responsible for policy should not be waving off the concern of the people who are being affected by those policies. And so it's really incumbent upon leadership to really account for the way the economy is affecting every individual family. That's well said. And so, so staying in your lane, as we, I wish Tony Fauci would do. I, I mean, actually, he, he is doing it. I just wish he would be covered appropriately as doing so. So there was some characterization of his input as limited to his expertise in the infectious disease area. So I blame him much less than I blame uh, the media. But, but he has essentially driven this idea that there's no such thing as an overreaction. And again, you heard him uh, with Anderson Cooper suggesting that uh, there should be a national lockdown getting ahead of where the policymakers are on that, even assuming that there's the president has that constitutional power, which is a subject of some debate. Uh, But what about that? And from a medical professional's perspective, do you agree with Fauci there should be a national lockdown? Do you agree with those who say that there should be a mandate that people wear cloth masks or some covering on their mouth and nose at minimum? Well, with regards to the mask, they will help. They certainly will not hurt depending on you not touching your face. The only problem that I have with masks is that sometimes it gives people the false sense of security and they think that they're safe, but then if you touch anything that's contaminated or infected and then you touch your eyes or you touch your mouth or nose or anywhere near your eyes, mouth or nose, then you've just negated the, the benefits of the mask. But as long as if you're also doing the hand washing, which by far and away will have the biggest impact, if you're doing that, then the mask will only help. With regards to the question about a federal lockdown order, that is, for one, it's a political question, and two, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't think the president has the power to do that. But also, um, like you said, this is a local issue. If there's a bar out in the middle of Lima, Ohio, I don't know that it really needs to be shut down. We have seen federalism work out very well in this case, because, you know, the, the response to this was really hampered by the bureaucratic siloing of the, the CDC and the FDA, in Seattle, that's that's a federal issue, right? That that really slowed down our response. Whereas I think it was last week, the FDA approved a company in Ohio to, uh, to perform these disinfections, but only partially. But then that was on Saturday. On Sunday, Mike DeWine said, "You know, I want this done now at full capacity." He called the president, and the president talked to the FDA, and then got the got the full approval. That's an excellent sign of federalism working better for the people. So I think there should be a local response. The local people are more accountable to the people. And they're responsibly better that way. He is Dr. Kevin Pham, medical doctor, contributor to the Daily Signal, and former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Pham, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This uh, piece from uh, Juliet Kayam, former Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security under President Obama. This uh, in the Atlantic. Canceling everything was the easy part. Hmm. Well, if she means that uh, it's easier to destroy something than it is to build it, then okay, I sort of concede the point. Now, uh, I don't agree with her conclusion, which we'll get to in a minute, but uh, I do appreciate some of the questions she raises about uh, the implications for the shutdown, the, the viral spread combined with the shutdown, looking at both in total, as I keep admonishing people to do and uh, get very little satisfaction from politicians on that score perhaps with the exception of the president and his team. Uh, thinking about uh, topics we've discussed throughout the, the last couple of weeks, what a post-COVID-19 America is going to look like. What about an America during this outbreak as and during this shutdown? For example, If 20% of a city's police department is infected or quarantined because of the coronavirus, how should the remaining officers decide which problems to take on? Already, some departments are closing buildings to the public. No more walk-ins. Others are focused on providing only essential service, such as investigating violent crimes, leaving nonviolent or property crimes for another day. Perhaps another day that will never come. You've had uh, some of the most uh, laughable pronouncements from big city mayors around the country. First, the mayor of Baltimore, now Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner, you probably heard this week, begging criminals to chill. Until the coronavirus is resolved, criminals take a break, okay? Stay home, stay home and don't commit any crimes. I suppose if it was that just that easy, (laughs) we could use that every day, whether we're in the middle of a pandemic or not. Hey, just chill out with your crime committing. I'm not sure he understands the mentality of the criminal, particularly the habitual one, but it speaks to uh, something that actually isn't funny, which is the means of police departments to protect the public, to provide for the public safety of the constituents they serve has been diminished. And, uh, you know, not just diminished with respect to uh, the spread of the virus in in, uh, infecting police officers in particular departments, with respect to the prioritization away from interdicting crime. It's a real thing. Uh, She writes, and remember, this is a Department of Homeland Security official from the Obama administration. In a society that can no longer satisfy all public safety demands, Where do you place a phone call about a martial argument that could escalate against the possibility that a uh, excuse me, a marital argument that could escalate against the possibility that a police officer would be infected? Should a late night dispatcher be left to determine which calls to ignore or should someone higher up the chain establish a basic policy? How many departments have answered these sorts of questions? Marital argument that could escalate other such exigencies of course of course and remember the first job of government at every level is what provide for the physical security of your constituents to the extent that hospitals and uh, medical professionals are overwhelmed which patients should doctors and nurses prioritize for life-saving efforts if they become overwhelmed who wants to write that policy 
you know, we'll see. I mean, so many of the projections are based on uh, incomplete data. And so there's the possibility of uh, wild exaggerations as well as wild understatements. That's the problem with the lack of reliable data to do reliable modeling, as we talked about earlier in the show. Schools. Should schools even try to open anytime soon? As for schools and educational standards, writes Ms. Kessem, one can only hope that kids return to the classrooms in the late summer or fall, but the progression is unpredictable. The United States has a high volume of cases unevenly distributed across a huge geographic area. Schools in many states begin in mid-August. Many school and university facilities are being retrofitted to use as makeshift hospitals for other pressing needs. If you were a principal or a superintendent or a university president, what would you do? Look for the, the Trump administration to solve all your problems for you? Doesn't work that way. She suggests on these and other ugly question, uh, questions, recent experience suggests the White House is unlikely to do anything more than provide broad guidance to the states. Well, that's the federalist system. Federalism is a convenient way for the president to let somebody else take the blame. Actually, uh, that speaks to sort of the government centric central government mentality. The Obama administration and some of its officials have and frankly, to hear that from a former uh, uh, official of uh, some clearance in a presidential administration is sort of jarring, isn't it? Former Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security ridiculing our federalist system, a system that we've used to deal with, well, first of all, a system that is enshrined in the Constitution. (laughs) Beware of anybody that wants to start suspending amendments you find in the Bill of Rights, and Ms. Kessem seems to be one such person. But actually, the federal response and the private sector response, particularly compared to the public sector response when it was command control, say, on the order of testing, which we've talked about this week, CDC for three weeks as command control versus animating the private sector and the amount of testing that's been done in the three weeks in March since that happened. Federalism is a convenient way for president to let somebody else take the blame. That's a disturbing statement. Federal support state management, local implementation, because the outbreak and is not the same in all 50 states and even within the 50 states. Uh, by the way, the cultures, the traditions, the way of life is different in states and communities within states too, isn't it? I can tell you as an Illinois resident, the uh, lifestyle and uh, culture in Chicago, the city of Chicago, is very different than central Illinois, is very different than southern Illinois. Is New York City different than Missoula, Montana? Yeah. She writes, and here's the kicker, in addition to the, the, the previous kicker I just mentioned. For all these questions that uh, we just ran through, which are good questions, it's just she's got the wrong answer. But at least she's asking the questions. For all these questions, the best answer will uh, will feel like a pyrrhic victory. The only wrong answer is to take action too late. No, there are other wrong answers. There are other wrong answers. Uh, the other uh, wrong answer is to willy-nilly suspend people's constitutional rights. The other wrong answer, uh, uh, wrong answers, are in the category of overreactions, which we've spent a lot of time talking about because there's so many who seem to believe, as does Ms. Kasem, apparently, uh, KM, excuse me, that uh, there's no such thing as an overreaction. 
Stasi hotlines in places like Kentucky to snitch on your neighbors or L.A., finding residents $1,000 in Laredo, Texas, uh, for not wearing a mask before even any federal guideline is issued. That's the federalist system. Now, I guess if states and localities do something you like, take these draconian measures, you're all supportive. When the federal government resists and lets communities and uh, a belief in subsidiarity, power closer to the people, be the order of the day, then you're upset. It really brings out uh, those uh, aspiring autocrats a crisis, doesn't it? The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, Wow, an actual interesting piece in CNN from the small business owner's perspective on the impact of COVID-19 and the economic shutdown. Uh, it's nice to see anything of this sort uh, with respect to giving voice to people from the economic health side that's inextricably linked to the public health side. I don't understand why we can't address those two sides holistically, contemplate them uh, in the aggregate. Uh, but uh, what they did, uh, CNN, this reporter, Kyung La, uh, looked at uh, and went and talked to the owners of half a dozen businesses along Colorado Boulevard in L.A., and let me give you a representative example of sort of the uh, attitude and the concern. Jan Yates and Alex Hartunian are owners of Studio Metamorphosis, which is a fitness center that opened uh, in 2017 on Colorado Boulevard in L.A. We just put everything together, and I mean scrounged every single dollar, every penny to open, and we did it. Alex did all the construction there. He literally poured in blood, sweat, and tears with his own hands. Alex, if we have like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, three, four months, what's the point? How will we open? How will we be ready to jump back into business? How, will, people, will people still be scared? And the more time goes on, the more the financial equation becomes looming in terms of like a huge, huge problem. Debt forgiveness is going to probably be the number one thing that's going to put people at ease and make them comply with the stay-at-home order. People are scared and they're doing side work. People are getting out there and maybe perpetuating a virus. But people want to know that if they hang tight, the government will tell us nothing's going to happen to your credit. You're not going to lose your home. You're not going to lose your place of business. And everybody just needs to be in this together. That's the message out there. But we need to hear it from our government. You know, well, can the government keep that promise even if they deliver that message? That's another legitimate question that a lot of individuals as well as individual business owners have. For more on the topic of some things that possibly you can do during this time to uh, protect yourself financially. We're pleased to be joined by Ashby Daniels, who's a certified financial planner, financial advisor uh, with Shorebridge Wealth Management. Ashby, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Of course, uh, you must be hearing from uh, entrepreneurs like uh, uh, the uh, couple that I mentioned uh, that own this fitness center in L.A. with some of those same questions and and same fears. What do you tell them? Well, I think that you're spot on is we're we're kind of in a waiting game with the government trying to figure out what they're going to do to kind of ward off some of the the negative effects of people literally not leaving their house. So, um, you know, unfortunately, it's it's a lot of a waiting game. I mean, we're, you know, you're looking at at client portfolios and seeing uh, what we can do to 
uh, you know, kind of protect them on the downside. But even beyond that, like, you know, looking at their, their long-term perspectives of, you know, if this is to go on much longer than we anticipate, then what are, what are, what's our fallback plan? Like, where are we going to get the cash? And so that's, that's a big focus as we speak. And obviously a lot of that is contingent on the composition of individual portfolios. So it's very individual specific. And I understand that, but are there some general areas where you're suggesting to all your clients uh, and to people who aren't your clients that uh, here, here's some areas to look to, to think about in times of austerity in a bear market uh, that you should be examining with respect to your own financial well-being? Absolutely. Well, you know, what I think is interesting about, you know, going through a bear market is that, you know, sometimes just doing something, you know, can help ward off some of the negative ill effects of going, you know, going through a bear market instead of just kind of the old song and dance and stay the course. You know, I think it's it's worthwhile to explore what are some options that you have. So some of the things that I've been going through with clients is, is first and foremost is tax loss harvesting. So with regard to portfolios, I mean, you know, you have a let's say you have a taxable taxable account. And, you know, in 2019, you may have wanted to make some changes to that account, but you couldn't have done it without significant uh, tax ramifications. So you could have gotten a giant tax bill. Well, you know, for clients who had positions, you know, obviously this means that that the positions are down. So it's a negative in that regard. But to be able to take advantage of a time like this where you can actually, if you have some positions in your taxable account that you were wanting to make some changes but didn't because of tax reasons, now might be an opportune time to actually make some of those changes. So, um, you know, you can kind of get your portfolio back to where you want along uh, the same line. Uh, you know what? Uh, hold, hold right there. Um, let's pick it up uh, right there with respect to your portfolio and get into some of the other suggestions you have. We'll be back with more. Ashby Daniels, certified financial planner, financial advisor with Shorebridge Wealth Management right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Ashby Daniels, who's a financial advisor, certified financial planner, professional with Shorebridge Wealth Management. And uh, before the break, we were talking about. Uh, some of your suggestions for people to consider tax loss harvesting was one uh, you worry about capital gains you don't have to worry about capital gains taxes so much right now so take advantage of your tax situation uh, and, and so let's pick it up from there and, and some other suggestions you have of areas of, of inquiry to explore now may be an opportune time to rebalance your portfolio so a lot of portfolios who may have been you know 70% equity 30% fixed income prior to this downturn now may find themselves with a, a 60% equity, 40% portfolio. So, you know, the age-old advice of, of buy low and sell high, opportunities like this to just from a rebalancing standpoint offer you that exact idea where if you sell some of the fixed income to get and buy more equities, then theoretically you're doing exactly 
you know, you're following that sage wisdom. So that's, that's a really easy one to go look at. So, um, one conversation I've had, I've had with a, a financial planning professional like yourself is, you know, when we have a little bit more stability in the market, whenever that may come, and we don't have wild thousand point swings back and forth on a seemingly on a daily basis, it may be a time to get out of, for example, exchange traded funds where you're taking the good, the bad and the ugly and uh, pick up individual stocks, you know, strong companies that have strong balance sheets that could survive just about anything short of rapture and uh, you and rebalance your portfolio in that direction. What do you say to that? Absolutely. I think, you know, I think every client is unique. So you know, there are certainly some clients that we're having those conversations as we speak where you're trying to pick up some individual companies that maybe were uh, overpriced for a while that, that maybe now are, are more reasonable. So absolutely. It depends on the client. I mean, whether you're getting out of ETFs or mutual funds or what have you, uh, there's no shortage of ideas or, you know, there's no shortage of strategies out there right now that that you can take a look at because the market is kind of offering us this opportunity. What about retirement accounts? Uh, obviously this is, uh, something that particularly people that are a little bit closer to retirement are, are jumpy about, uh, uh, what, uh, what are some thoughts you have on IRAs and 401ks? So, one thing I would say is, you know, kind of coming back to that rebalancing argument, if you're a retiree and you had set aside, you know, some fixed income assets to provide during times like this, you know, maybe rebalancing isn't the best strategy for you. If that, if that money is set aside to kind of be your war chest, then rebalancing may not be in your best interest. But beyond that, you know, for, for retirees, if you, if you have legacy goals, then, you know, convert, thinking about or considering the idea of converting your IRA now would be a good time because if you think about it, you know, you're getting far more bang for your buck potentially if you convert a traditional IRA because you're going to pay less in taxes. And then theoretically, the, the account is down. So you could, you know, purchase that at an opportune time to hopefully allow for a larger legacy for your for your other, um, you know, for your future heirs. And, and, and what about um, um sort of, um, as the, the phrasing goes, true up uh, your 401k with your with your company? Absolutely. So there's, you know, you, you could take this as an opportunity. A lot of people who are, you know, whether they're nearing retirement or early on in, or early on in their planning, you know, if you are somebody who funds your IRAs and your 401k, now would be a great time potentially to, I mean, we may still have further to go down. I mean, I, you know, who knows, who's to know that? But we know that it's down for a lot, a lot from where it was at the beginning of the year. So taking this as an opportunity to fully fund, get the money into your IRAs and 401ks as soon as possible. Now, before you were going to, before you might do that with your 401k in particular, though, you would want to call your your human resources department if you can get them on the phone this day and age with everybody being home. All right. But you would want to call and confirm that your 401k has what's called a true up provision where you don't miss out on matching. A lot of people don't realize that if you fund your 401k in advance too far, that you actually miss out on matching, on your matching contribution. So you would want to be sure that your employer offers that true up option if you're going to, if you're going to take that approach. Um, I wanted to get some perspective on this too, um, as uh, somebody who uh, lived through the great recession in 2008, 2009, the, the, so are there lessons learned by professional uh, financial professionals like yourself that are uh, being uh, employed during this uh, bear market? Well, I think one of the, you know, there's, there's two lessons that I think are, are valuable. One is that at least historically speaking, 100% of recessions have ended in a recovery. 
And the, the Dow Jones and the, and the market low, you know, ended somewhere around 6,500. I mean, even as we stand now, we're still north of 20,000. So just, just the comfort in knowing, like, I don't worry about where the next 10% swing is going to happen. That's unpredictable. We should focus on where the next 100% swing is going to be. I think that's rhetorical, but I think it's important nonetheless. And the other thing is, is that a lot of people who are worrying about, you know, the financial sectors in particular, if they are, you know, one thing I think that at least our government hopefully learned through the through the crisis of, you know, 2007 to 2009 is just that, you know, we we have a kind of a backstop. The government has already admitted that they're they're going to that they're willing to come to bat. That was a big shock to the system in that during the Great Recession that I think that is on is less of worry on people's minds as we speak because of the tone of what's coming out of uh, out of the government, out of the White House that they're they're there to to back that up. So I think that's a good lesson on the government side. And I think on the personal side is just knowing that, you know, historically, 100 percent of recoveries have occurred uh, in the uh, the rush to get uh, cash onto the sidelines. You know, what what's an indicator for you to uh, advise clients to uh, to, to redeploy the cash as they've gone to cash to redeploy? Is it as simple as saying, well, when when uh, the uh, health care prof- or the, 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 the public health professionals and the president say we're going to start reopening the economy because we've uh, gotten to the other side of the curve? Is it longer term than that? Is it a bit of waiting somewhere in between those points? How do you uh, how do you, you know, strategize that moment? I think it's a matter of, you know, kind of going back to the old the old philosophy of dollar cost averaging. So instead of maybe just dumping a ton of money in at one time and trying to pick the bottom, maybe you come up with a strategy where you do it over a series of weeks or over a series of months and have rules in place. So if you say, let's just say that you have 100000 that you want to put redeploy into the market. Well, maybe you do 20000 a month and you do it on the same day, no matter what's going on in the market, or you do it over a period of weeks. Or whatever the strategy is, you have to come up with a strategy that feels comfortable for you. So I'm certainly not in the camp of trying to pick a bottom. I think that's a fool's errand. But I think that if you kind of deploy the assets in an intelligent way, you can really, uh, you know, it can add some comfort. And then you can kind of uh, allow the, the you can allow those funds to go in without really wrecking yourself potentially. He is Ashby Daniels. He's a financial advisor and certified financial planner with Shorebridge Wealth Management. Ashby, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your uh, advice and counsel to keep us on this side of the abyss. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Stay take, safe out there. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show as we uh, shuffle off into the weekend. I want to remind you that uh, our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla, their number one political documentary of 2019 is available to watch at home. If you're looking for um, something entertaining and edifying to watch uh, with this downtime that you have. No Safe Spaces now available for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. Make good use of this time. Share it with your family. A lot of content out there, and most of it's being pushed by companies that don't share your values. Here's an opportunity to support a film that does share your values and uh, traditional American values. Hollywood doesn't want you to see the movie. That's why you're not accessing on Amazon or Hulu or Netflix. But uh, you can watch it at nosafespaces.com. Film stars Prager and Carolla talking about the importance of free speech and free thought in a free society. 
and it includes a uh, uh, few points from across the political spectrum, the Jordan Petersons of the world, as well as the Cornell West's and Alan Dershowitz's of the world. Again, check it out over the weekend. No Safe Spaces is available for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. And as we shuffle off for the weekend, we are sad to report today the uh, news of the great Bill Withers shuffling off this mortal coil to his eternal reward, the wonderful singer, songwriter, soul man, Bill Withers. So let's uh, have another musical interlude, a good way for some mental, some, some food for the mind, a little bit of mental health break, a reprieve from everything COVID-19. Uh, we'll uh, start with a little Ain't No Sunshine and then end on a unifying note. But ain't no sunshine when she's gone Ain't no sunshine when she's gone Only darkness every day Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's this house just ain't no And then his uh, wonderful song that was uh, popularized for my generation in film and uh, is a useful message during these times as people are doing precisely this, leaning on each other. Lean on me when you're not strong and I'll be your friend. I'll help Have a safe and COVID-19 free weekend. Catch us on the Dan Prop Show on Monday. Thank you. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.